Welcome to Be There Done That, a Catholic history podcast with Lilia and Jake. And we're finally back after several months. <laughs> There's a reason why we don't go like weekly, monthly. I mean, we try to take the time to actually to read a few books. Read a few books before we record a podcast. Um today's episode will be on the servant of God known as Black Elk. Yes, and servant of God is a the technical term to designate that he has a open sainthood cause. Um, I think it was opened in 2017 by the Diocese of Rapid City, South Dakota. And um, his name is Nicholas Black Elk. He is a Lakota catechist and holy man. Like by trade, he was a, a medicine man and considered a religious leader of his people before converting to Catholicism and then taking up a role in the church where he was also a teacher. And we're going to just note that he's an Oglala Sioux. Yeah. Yeah. We can explain all that. I think we need to give big picture, I think, and kind of orient him, orient people. Okay. Because I know we do have some listeners who are not American, but even for the Americans, I think this is confusing because we talk about the Sioux and some people say Lakota and then other people are going to call him Oglala. So it, I mean, I needed clarifying just for my own. Yeah. I, I never really studied in depth any of the Native American history. So I guess let's put first in a time period. Nicholas Black Elk lived from about 1863. It's I think his birth year is a little bit disputed. Yes, uh, from 1863, is. though, roughly, to 1950. So he's got... I mean, a pretty long life. What is that? It's uh, almost 90 years? Well, um, that's also disputed. Yes, that is bad. 87 years. Some people say he's born earlier, I think. Yes. He's older. 1860, maybe is what that means. But I think he states that he wasn't as old. He thought, yeah, I I think he says to somebody that he was his birth year, and he he stated it in terms of the winter count of of his band of the Lakota. And the winter count was like this pictorial kind of chart where they would record like the most significant event of the year. And he said he was born in the year when four crows were killed on the Tongue River, I think. Four crow Indians. And that was like a significant event that they remembered. That's obviously hard to match up with a, you know, 1863, 1864, 1865. When was that? But they think it's 1863 and they think he was born in the summer. He would later tell people he was born in December, on December 6th, but that was actually the day he was baptized on the feast day of St. Nicholas, and that's where he adopted the Christian name of Nicholas Black Elk. We were talking about how um, the different Native American tribes, just so, like, to give background, especially to those who are like yeah. not from the okay, United States. Okay, so big, big picture. The middle of the 19th century is where we're at, so mid-1800s. The United States has expanded westward, but they've actually kind of jumped over the Great Plains. So in the middle of the 19th century, you've got these tribes in the western United States from like the Dakotas and Montana down to Texas and New Mexico, who are still basically independent and who are who are holding out against the expansion of the United States, which has expanded across the eastern U.S. and then to the west coast, but skipped the Great Plains in the middle. His people, Black Elk's people, are called the Lakota, and they're part. They're one of the main divisions of the Sioux. So Dakota people were actually the eastern group of the Sioux. Lakota are a western group, and they were the larger group that held out longest. 
And so these are the people of like Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, Red Cloud. These are all famous contemporaries of, of Black Elk. Other people who are Plains Indians who are further south of them would be like the Cheyennes, the Comanches and Apaches, these other famous groups that the U.S. Army fights in the 19th century, especially right after the Civil War. And that's the other thing that's going on. When he's born, 1863, the United States is in the middle of the American Civil War. Abraham Lincoln is president. And generally, white people are kind of distracted in the East by that, all that going on. But it actually doesn't stop there from being expansion into Lakota lands by people who are in search of gold, especially in Montana. And then later, when he's a kid, Custer comes and explores the Black Hills and announces that they've discovered gold. And that, that causes there to be pressure on on the Lakota as these people want to come in and the government says, you know, we're not we're not even going to try to stop them. We want to buy them from buy the hills from you. And uh, that's going to lead to a, a war that kind of just changes everything for them. Okay. So this is a, most of the story is going to happen in South Dakota. Um, and that's where the Sioux Reservation is now. And obviously the diocese that's promoting his sainthood cause. His band or uh, clan within the Lakota is called the Oglala. So he's sometimes called an Oglala, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then within that, he had, you know, his like smaller family group that he mostly traveled with. They were nomadic hunter-gatherers when he was a kid, still living in teepees, hunting buffalo, living a traditional lifestyle. Which I found very interesting, like at this point in time, like you just, you kind of just imagine that there's, for the Western world, it's just like a whole different world. Yeah, I mean, it's weird to think that in, meanwhile, in Europe, the first Vatican Council is happening. And, you know, Bismarck and the Civil War in the United States and Queen Victoria. And yeah, yeah, it's all, it's interesting. So should we go to, from his birth? So he's very famous because of a book called Black Elk Speaks that was written um, and published in 1932, where a poet named John Nyhart came and it was researching the ghost dance movement, which we'll talk about. And he, he meets Black Elk and realizes that Black Elk has this fascinating life that spans, that spans the centuries. And so he ends up basically doing interviews with Black Elk and putting Black Elk's life down, his early life down, into this book that he, Nyhart, is the one that kind of put the final stamp on. And that makes it kind of easier to talk about his early life for like his first basically 30 years from like his boyhood in 1863 up until the ghost dance um, movement collapses in the around, around like 1890, you know, so we'll have to cover that. And it's always black Oak speaks. It's going to be in the background of any discussion of his early life. And then we'll, we'll discuss the entire second 60 years of his life after that. So I guess let's talk about his early life, the same part of period that's covered by Nyhart. So like we said, he's, he, you know, he and his family, his father is named Black Elk. They live a traditional life on the plains. And then when he's a kid, the there starts to be pressure from settlers who are trying to get to Montana. And they're coming up across Lakota lands. This causes partly something that's called Red Clouds War, where they fight, including Black Elk's father and young Crazy Horse, fight the army to make sure that they're not going to have this road and this, you know, this flow of settlers coming through. Um, his father gets injured and kind of, I think he has a permanent limp after that um, in a battle called the Fetterman fight or the, the battle of the hundred slain. And that's where crazy horse lures out this 
group of cavalry and it's an ambush and it's a great victory and it leads to the Lakota feeling kind of confident and secure for a few years before they start coming under pressure again for the Black Hills when they refuse to sell those. And so this was when he was like in his like five or... Yeah, there's a timeline, but yeah, he's a kid. Yeah, so December 21st, 1866 is the so-called Fetterman Massacre, known as the Battle of Hundred Slain. Um, this one says he's like three and a half. Yeah, so he would just be, I mean, he's a little kid at this point. It depends on whether you think he was born in 1860 or 1863 or somewhere abouts there. And that also impacts how old you think he is at the Battle of Little Bighorn, which comes later. Is he 12 or is he older? So... But yeah, when he's a little kid, at least, his father's going to be wounded at that battle. And, and it's in a good cause for them because it actually ends in a favorable outcome for the Indians. They actually managed to... Oh, and by the way, it, my in my opinion, and I've studied some Native American history in undergrad and went to law school in Oklahoma and studied some Native American law. I think people nowadays pretty much use American Indian and Native American interchangeably. Neither term is perfect. I'm going to sometimes say Indian... Uh, what I mean about it is Native American or American Indian. I'll try to mostly say Lakota if I'm talking about Lakota people. But it, anyway, this uh, Red Clouds War ends with a favorable outcome um, with the Treaty of Fort Laramie where they're guaranteed their lands. And his father and Crazy Horse and Red Cloud can all kind of feel good about that for a time. Now, I want to also just put really quickly um, that crazy horse is actually supposed to be a distant relative, right? Like a cousin, right? Yeah, they wouldn't have considered a distant for us now, where it's like we don't even talk to our own cousins and uncles. It's super distant. He's like a second cousin. Depends on your culture, Jake. Yeah, I know. In Hispanic culture, that's like probably much closer than in mine. But, I mean, I don't even talk to my mom's cousin's kids. But that's a, that's a I think that's basically his... Uh, I think Crazy Horse's father and Black Oak's father shared, like, a grandfather. So they had, like, uncles who were really... I don't know what that... I don't know. They're, like, first or second cousins, something around like that. Mm-hmm. Close enough that actually after this um, and in the years leading up to the war for the Black Hills, Black Elk's family and Crazy Horse are, like, camping and traveling together. And Black Oak does get to know Crazy Horse and describes him. And this is all, it maybe doesn't seem like church history, but we'll get there. So Red Cloud then tries to stick to the treaty. It becomes clear, basically, after Custer's expedition into the Black Hills in South Dakota, which are considered sacred by the Lakota, that they are, the United States is not going to be committed to the treaty. They're not going to try to uphold it or prevent settlers or gold prospectors coming into the Black Hills. And this is going to lead to a proclamation that all Indians must come to the agency on the reservation um, or they're going to be considered hostile. And this is issued in like the dead of winter when it's going to be impossible for many groups, Mm -hmm. including Black Oak's family, to get there in time for the deadline. The deadline passes. They're suddenly considered hostile Indians and fighting breaks out. It's the war for the Black Hills is how I'll call it um, because that's what it was about. This leads up eventually to the Battle of the Little Bighorn, which is going to be a famous blunder where Custer um, is the commander who divides his forces and it tries to attack this giant camp of um, Lakota and also, I think, Cheyennes who are there. Mm-hmm. Crazy horses there, sitting bulls there, and they end up able to surround part of Custer's unit and to um, kill him and everybody else who's cut off. Mm-hmm. And it's this devastating defeat for the arm, or uh, devastating, but 
it feels like a devastating defeat. And um, I just want to point out really quick that during this time for Black Elk, like, um, to go so, in line with this, I, I want to let you guys know where Black Elk is during this time. He he was possibly like he's probably I think people say he's about twelve. Yeah, he's he's possibly about twelve, and so his family thinks he's not quite ready to join battle yet. Though he says that some of his friends were in the battle, and his aunt had already given him a gun, a revolver, when they were left the fort for the last time, or left the reservation agency or fort. Um. So at this time, he was already feeling the need to help his people. We're going to go back a couple years, like, what, six years or so? I think or is he that, nine years old? Sorry. I think he was nine when he has the vision. Okay. So about three years then. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go back uh, three years to where he uh, he's about nine years old, and he gets very sick and has this vision. Did they say he had meningitis or something, maybe? I didn't actually read that. Oh, uh, maybe it was in this biography. I don't, I don't, I won't swear by that. But he gets a sickness where he, I think he experiences difficulty walking, and eventually he just collapses and he goes into a coma for like a week. Mm-hmm. And during that time, his family is basically convinced he's going to die, and he then has this out-of-body experience. He goes up into the sky, he says, and he um, goes into a, a, a teepee made out of cloud. He meets six grandfathers, these spirits. Um, they give him different presents that are symbolic, and he also sees a, a tree blooming in the center of a hoop, a circle. And they sometimes if you Google, like, pretty much if you Google anything like Lakota religion or Black Elk religion or something, you'll see this image of a, a circle that's, I think, red, white, black, and yellow. And that's what he's referring to, I guess. But there's a lot of different imagery in it of, of horses, of... Mm-hmm thunder and lightning and geese and different colors that are symbolic and he but he to the lakotas yes and but long and short of it is that it has like a a prophetic quality to it about what's going to happen to him and his people over the years about Mm -hmm. different roads that they're going to have to walk and hardships they're going to go through and it also is supposed to give him sort of power and a mission which he's going to feel throughout his life and try to, to to interpret and to figure out and wonder if he's following it or not and um and this vision is seen as something great that he does have this mystic power over, like among his people um and the same thing when he talks about his vision he also talks about the fact that crazy horse was seen as the same yeah and that's what I was going to try to make that connection um that it, he always describes crazy horse as having this kind of like mystical side to him and it, even his name is based off a vision he has of a of a horse dancing yes so it's and it, they're just a very deeply religious people, and that's it touches everything in his childhood, the sense of kind of mystical destiny. Um, and his grandfather was supposed to be a medicine man, too. Uh, yeah, I think he's from a, fa- a family of medicine men. And it, basically, as he grows older, then to skip ahead after this battle and into his early, into the late 1890s in his early life, he becomes a professional medicine man where he uses these, these religious ceremonies to as a healing uh, and that's, method. And can you explain to... Those who aren't from the United States that don't know what a medicine man is, it's not like a doctorate. What are they exactly? I mean, it is sort of, it is a... They, I mean, they're thought of as what we think of as doctors, I guess. Yeah, but. they would, I mean, for traditional Lakota people, I think at that time, they would they would literally have considered him an alternative to a white man kind of doctor, like American medical person. 
but it, there's also a religious quality to it. Like it all, it involves the use of, of power and calling on spirits and prayer. And it's, um, it's not for anybody. It involves like kind of a personal charism, I guess we would say. Mm-hmm. Later on, when he describes it to his, when he's converted to Catholicism, he's talking about it to his daughter. He kind of sounds like he has become disillusioned with it and says that there's, it's like doing tricks of magic. Like, and he means it like a performer. So it's like a, it has kind of a performance art side to it where you're using psychology and, and a, creating a mood to help people. And he doesn't like it at that point because they're being hit with some really serious diseases. But we can talk about that later. But it's it's something that involves ceremony as well as like actual knowledge of mm-hmm. herbs and, and folk remedies. And it, part of it is like you pray and then you get revealed to you knowledge of some folk remedy of, of a root that you need to go find or a flower. And you go find it and you... You make the medicine. So that's going to be his job later. And it seems to have been a family kind of career path that he was, that w- it would have been prepared, you know, in people's minds for him to take yeah. up that role. So let's go he back to the, to Little Bighorn before we yeah. get to a head. Okay. So to recap. But just to, just to, just to, so you guys know, he was born. Then born, there was the battle. Then there's the Red Cloud War, Fetterman fight, um, where his father's injured. And between that, he has his vision. Right, and there's a little bit of period of peace where he describes his buffalo hunts and times of plenty. Then, Treaty of Fort Laramie is broken, War for the Black Hills begins, we get to the Battle of Little Bighorn. And I want to I wanna preface this too, that, that Red red Cloud was seen as the bad guy because they thought he was... At this point now, yeah, it's like he's a sellout in their eyes, at least in, in his family's eyes, that's how he's kind of described as like, oh, now he's trying to be, you know, a good Indian and... He's a stooge because he wants to stay by their agency and fly his American flag and stuff. He's gone to meet the president. And he, I think he was just trying to, he was trying to stand by his word the way that no one else cared to. But at the time, you know. That yeah, I don't think it was all. Leaders like Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse are kind of in the ascendancy right now because things are so charged. But yeah, they win the Battle of Little Bighorn. I think there's another battle or two after that. But they ultimately lose the entire conflict because they're just in a tough spot. I mean, there's always more soldiers who can be sent out there. There's not, you can't always get more, more warriors. And actually after, so after this, should we talk about what the American soldiers are, or Brandon people are being now told to do to destroy the native Americans? Yeah. That's what I was going to say is that since even 20 years before this, I think, this mass slaughter of the buffalo has started on the plains. Which is the sole, I wouldn't say economy, but the sole survival. I mean, it's an important, It's a, they use it for everything. Yeah. I mean, it's their, their hide is used for their shelters, for the teepees. It, they use all the bones. They use the bladder. They use the hoofs. They use the fur. I mean, they use absolutely 100% of it and they need it. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to continue going. They're going to have to stop and figure out something else like cattle ranching or farming. Mm-hmm. And that's what the U.S. government wants to do is to get them off of buffaloes, off, take away the horses and guns and make them farm or move them to Oklahoma and, and get them just out of the way completely. So right now, you know, they're having a harder, harder time after these, even after a great success like the Little Bighorn, they face some hard winters where they just can't find enough food really. And there's, they're having to break up into smaller and smaller groups because you can't keep a giant village like happened at the little bighorn together permanently. 
under those circumstances. And some people go up to Canada in the hopes of like, maybe we'll be under a little bit less pressure up here. They call it grandmother's land because grandmother England, Queen Victoria owns it, which I thought was kind of funny. But it's it's not a great situation there either because a sitting bull will find in exile in Canada. The Canadian government doesn't want them there. And they, they're aware also of the decline of the buffalo herds. And they're telling sitting bull, when the food runs out, we are not going to give you anything. You're not Canadian Indians. So we're, you're not going to have a reservation here. We're not going to give you rations. You're going to have to go home. And the U.S. government also having Sitting Bull on the loose, another Lakota on the loose north of the border, is a constant threat. And they don't, they don't like the situation. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they all start to surrender. Crazy Horse surrenders. And he's going to be put under arrest and kind of dragged away. I now, think this what, is, year, what year is this? I think at this point we've jumped it forward maybe two years. Let's see. Da, da, da. This is 1877. Crazy Horse is at Camp Robinson, and he ends up resist. They're going to try to put him in a jail cell. He resists, and a soldier bayonets him in the stomach, I think. Black Hawk, actually, I think, was even in like the back of a crowd um, surrounding the scene mm-hmm. when this happens. And it's, you know, this is a heavy blow because he's such a famous, charismatic, important symbol for them and these victories that he, he secured at the Little Bighorn, but he dies, and Black Elk, that's a period in, like, the 1880s, I think, he gets into more becoming a medicine man, and, I mean, he's growing up now, so the 1880s, he's what, I mean, he's at late teens, and starting to get after, into the 20s. After Crazy Horse's death, is this when he decides to join Buffalo Bill? Yeah, I think that's, that's, like, 1886, and a review of the, um, this one biography we were looking at by Joe... Jackson, there's a review, a review of it in the Dallas Morning News where they, the writer said Black Elk has almost like this Forrest Gump quality where it's he's always in like rubbing shoulders with someone iconic at the moment. So first, you know, he's a battle of Little Bighorn with Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. And then he joins up with Buffalo Bill Cody and goes to Europe with the Wild West show. And what made him and his, what made him decide to join? He wanted, he says at least that he wanted to learn about white people's ways to figure out you know how to help his people because remember guys like this mission he he really thinks that there's a after his vision and everything he believes that there's something he needs to do to help his people he wants to see them flourish again we now get to something though a little bit more interesting with his religious life because to get to i don't know if you read this but in order to join the wild west show with buffalo bill you had to convert to episcopalianism so he actually gets baptized, possibly at this point. I think it's a little uncertain, but he would have been required to re- to convert to the Episcopal Church in order to be part of the Buffalo Bills group when he when he signed the contract. So it's possible that before he got baptized as a Catholic, he had actually already been baptized by the Episcopalians, which is interesting canonical problem. But yeah, and going back to the Forrest Grump uh, connection there or resemblance. Do you want to see say who else he met in Europe? Well, he meets Queen Victoria at one point. He says that she had soft hands and they liked her. And uh, he kind of there's sort of a sad moment where he says he wonders if things would have been different if she had been their grandmother instead of you know the great father in Washington. Yeah. But yeah, he who goes. Who is the president? Just so you guys know. Just yeah, they would call. They would always call the president of the United States the the great father yeah, in Washington. They'd call Congress the great council. I I would guess that the Native Americans probably got tired of hearing about this. 
but that's the terminology that was used repeatedly in, in treaties and in talks with them. And the representatives will always say, you know, the great father sent us to, he wants to take care of you. Um, he wants to give you all these cattle and rations and I don't know. Yeah. So anything else in the Wild Bill show that you want to explain? Well, to? yeah. So when he's in Europe, he starts to encounter, I mean, with Buffalo Bill, one, he encounters a white person that he thinks is a good person. He says that they call him long hair at Pahuska. And he says that he has had a great heart, um, that he was like very generous. And he also, when he's over there, he starts noticing English people going to church and he probably mm -hmm. visits great cathedrals in England and in maybe France and Italy too, because when he's, after he's with Wild Bill, at one point in Manchester, he accidentally gets left behind by the boat, him and some other Lakota. They don't speak English, and they're trapped in England, which is kind of unfortunate. So here's the other little mini Yeah, story. so another Forrest Gump incident. He ends up in a, in a, a uh, cheap neighborhood of London, and they end up getting questioned in connection with some murders that are happening in the Whitechapel area, which are the Jack the Ripper murders. So he gets called in, and it, at the time, they actually, there was had been a theory, I guess, in the British press that, or my, I don't know, among the just people, rumor-mongering, that maybe these weird grisly murders that are happening are happening because of these cowboys and Indians who are visiting. You know, it sounds like something that would happen at a place like Battle of Little Bighorn. Yeah. So they question them, and luckily there's a Lakota with them who speaks some English and is able to kind of clear it up, and they get set loose again. Once it's clear that they had nothing to do with it and they're totally mm -hmm. bewildered. Then they end up in um, France and they join up with another Wild West show run by a guy named Mexican Joe, I think. And he likes him too. They go to France and Belgium and Germany and Italy. And he even goes to see Mount Vesuvius and Pompeii. I mean, he's all over the place. Mm -hmm. He's in. <laughs> and like I said, he probably sees cathedrals at this point and he becomes curious about Christianity. At least about, at least it's something that he views favorably because mm -hmm. the Lakota member are very spiritual mm -hmm. and all he's seen of white people so far is greed and brutality. He hasn't seen people who are just normal people going to church. So he likes that. When he's in France again, he actually has like a French girlfriend and he's staying with her at her family's house when he has another one of these epic visions where he crosses the ocean and he sees his family. When he comes out of it, he finds out that they had like bought a coffin for him and they were getting, they thought he was gone. You know, he was in a coma again for days and they thought he was dying. So he keeps having these weird, like near death resurrection experiences. And at that point, then he, he actually hears that Buffalo Bill's in town and he goes to the wild west show and presents himself and everybody's really surprised and they give him some money and send him home um, and throw a feast for him. And he gets back to the reservation and a here, here he comes back. From what seemed like a great trip, sort of. Uh, and he and, was sick and tired of it, but it's, it, I mean, it sounds like it must have been something he remembered, really, for yeah. <laughs> the rest of his life. Um, so he comes back. These are lighter chapters of Black Oak Speaks. It's about to get dark. Yeah. He comes back to... So he's gone from, like, 1886 to 1889. And when he gets back, the ghost dance religion has yeah. arrived, meanwhile. Yeah, and this is... But I was going to say the background is that the natives are not doing very well. No, everything, everything is awful. And in their, their desperation, I guess, is kind of the way he paints it. They are, or they're open to this rumor from the Western Indians that a Messiah has arrived among people called the Paiutes in Nevada. 
And Indians from all over the West are sending people to go check out the story that there's this miracle working Indian who has a kind of a prophetic mission to restore the pre-colonial kind of status quo and to get rid of all the white people, bring back the buffalo, even bring back all the Indians who have died in these wars and through disease and everything. Mm-hmm. I think his name's Wavoka, but they call him the Messiah. And uh, some Lakota go to see him and claim that he was able to perform miracles and they, they come back convinced. And I think he kind of, in retrospect... Well, and then the people who are dancing to have visions, so it's like... A... Yeah, it's sort of a, one of those things that's like, it, it, it takes on this really charismatic quality that says, like, self-confirming, because everybody's having these spiritual experiences. Mm-hmm. And he does, too, even though later he comes to, to doubt it somewhat. But he um, he's skeptical about this, he listens to it, and then he decides that he's going to join in these what they're called the ghost dances, which is what this Wovoka Messiah I mean, I teaches think, them. Didn't he bring it to his people too? He didn't bring the ghost dance to them. He he joins in it, but then he he helps to shape it because he has the vision where he sees the shirts that they're going to wear. Mm-hmm. But let's stop for just one second and um, I think explain it, kind of an odd aspect of the ghost dance thing is that they're not just calling him a Messiah. Like they literally seem to think he's a Messiah. They think he's Jesus the messiah like they when they the lakota go and meet him they want to see his wounds from the crucifixion mm-hmm. and they, they talk about how he went first to the white people they killed him a long time ago and now he's come to the to the indian people to deliberate them basically yeah and so this is so there's kind of a melding of traditional this, the the lakota by the time he black elk gets back is there this is the rumor that's going around is that this person is is literally it's the second coming of Jesus, mm-hmm. um, at least as they are understanding. To verify it. that. Yeah, so there's like a melding already here of like traditional and Christianity, traditional religion and Christianity into a sort of a third new religion mm-hmm. that isn't always considered when people are talking about it. Was Black Elk traditionalist or was he a Christian? There's also this ghost dance moment. Mm-hmm. But Wovoka teaches them to do a dance called the Ghost Dance. And what's supposed to happen is, I think, in spring of 1891, he's predicting that there's going to be like a flood and it's going to, all the, the Indians who have done the Ghost Dance are going to go up to the mountains. The white people are going to get washed away. And then the buffalo are going to come back. And the reason they call it the Ghost Dance is because he also believes that the, there's going to be like a resurrection of the dead mm-hmm. at that point. And it's going to be, you know, New Earth and a clean slate. And everybody's really could kind of use that right now because they're they're feeling yeah. sort of devastated. Should we talk about the vision that Black Elk has himself in, during one of the ghost dances? Yeah. Someone that resembles the Messiah? Like yeah, me? so it's le- supplementing onto that. Black Elk decides, well, let's give this a chance. He joins in and has a vision, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, what you're hinting at, what does he see? Yeah, he sees Jesus. Well, I mean, what we as Christians would consider Jesus. Yeah, and it, I think, I mean, let's even... It's not... Um, the Black Elk Speaks book by Nightheart obviously clearly doesn't want to say that, but for us, it's I mean, I think it's pretty he, clear that it's Jesus. I assume that Nightheart presents us this way because I mean that in order to imply that without so much saying it. Yeah. Let me see if I can find it real fast. So this is a one. This is part of what Nightheart says that Black Elk said about one of his visions during Ghost Dance. They led me to the center of the circle, where once more I saw the holy tree all full of leaves and blooming, but that it was not all I saw. Against the tree there was a man standing with arms held wide in front of him. I looked at 
hard at him, and I could not tell what people he came from. He was not a Washichu, and he was not an Indian. His hair was long and hanging loose, and on the left side of his head he wore an eagle feather. His body was strong and good to see, and it was painted red. I tried to recognize him, but I could not make it out. He was a very fine-looking man. While I was staring hard at him, his body began to change and became very beautiful with all colors of light, and around him there was a light. He spoke like singing. My life is such that all earthly beings and growing things belong to me. Your father, the great spirit, has said this. You too must say this. So, so. especially with the sense of like the great spirit, the great spirit is already, they already have an idea of like one. Of like a, a god, like a, a god that transcends just, all the other spirits. Yeah, just one god, not multiple deities. Not a pantheon. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, like that was pretty huge and... Yeah, and like you said, I mean, Black Elk always is going to maintain afterwards that the Lakota already had a deep sense of God's presence and mission for them, that they already knew him and were praying to him continually, is what he says in the, the Sacred Pipe book, another book that's written about him. I think he would say that this is a, a vision that he would continue to believe in, that he really did see yeah. the Son of God. Mm-hmm. So that's something. He says he meets the resurrected Jesus during the ghost dance. But at the same time, he later he says that he gets distracted by the ghost dance religion from his great vision of, you know, of kind of restoring the people and the focus on this tree blooming. Mm-hmm. Because he gets, he brings them something else from his vision that are these shirts called the, I think they call them the ghost shirts. And they're mm-hmm. supposed to be invincible to bullets. Which, and, which will, yeah. let's go to that. that next. So meanwhile, what's going on now that the Lakota have been surrendered and they've been moved to the reservation. Which is a... Pine, a is it the Pine Ridge Reservation? Um, is this the Pine Ridge one? There's a Rosebud Reservation and Pine Ridge, I think, are the two in the southern part of South Dakota. But they're confined to these reservations, which I are... I think it's supposed to be the Pine Ridge. Right? I think you were right. I think he's on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Because that's where the shooting happens. Yeah. The, so he's... But just to clarify for people that are not familiar with the terms we're using, a reservation is a section of land... Um, sometimes they're really big and sometimes they're really small. Obviously, once you, if you had previously the entire Western United States, they're, of course, they're going to seem very small. But they've been confined now to this much smaller territory called the reservation. On the reservation, they have an Indian agent from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Who, he, not, not that he's an Indian, but that he's there as a representative of the U.S. government to deal with things like handing out the rations. And this agent, during the ghost dance movement, is starting to panic because he thinks this is the beginning rumblings of another uh, like Lakota war. Mm-hmm. And, and also just to clarify too, with these agents and and the, these reservations, they also had so many rules for them on top of that. Yeah. Um, and one of the things was that they wanted them to be Christians and. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about, I'd say let's save that just for right after this. So let's okay. talk first, but you should realize one thing, aspect of that is that Native American religion at this time is illegal. So from, I think, the the 1880s, just before this, and during this period, certainly, it's totally federal policy to tell the Native Americans, you cannot do a sun dance. We don't like the ghost dance. Don't do that either. Mm-hmm. And we're going to send, by the way, we're going to send you Episcopalian missionaries. You know, they're just not being treated with the same kind of rights to religious freedom and assembly and all these things that you would take for granted in the rest of the country, at least mm-hmm. for white people at this time. But I, in my opinion, they're being treated worse than, than African-Americans in the Jim Crow South at this specific moment in time. 
But anyway, the agent is panicking. He calls in um, reinforcements and the army comes in. And it's actually the 7th Cavalry, Custer's old unit. There's an encampment of Indians who are led by a leader named Bigfoot, who's very sick, who come in to surrender, basically. And they, the military surrounds them and is in the process of disarming them when someone's gun goes off. And a battle immediately breaks out. At the beginning phase, it's like an actual battle where there's like fighting between people and it's a little bit even. But then as the Indians start to flee, the civilians, which is most of them, they just start getting mowed down. And it turns into this horrible massacre called the Massacre at Wounded Knee after the creek that's nearby, Wounded Knee Creek. And at this time, um, and it's, Black Elk is, is not in the battle, but they hear, he's like yeah. in the background and he they hear. So the, the Lakota can hear the these um, guns going off from miles around. They actually, they have these repeating guns that are mowing people down. And they say that for miles around, you can hear like the sound of a sheet tearing mm-hmm. and they know something horrible is happening. So people start to band together and go over and black elk ends up with like 20 young men around him. And they go in and charge at the soldiers. Black elk doesn't even have a weapon. He has his bow, which is just, you know, a stick in his hand. And he charges to try to distract fire from people so that they can rescue some captives and, yeah. He himself finds, um, I think they he carries away one wounded man on his horse, and then he finds a baby who he kind of puts away in a safe spot wrapped up and comes back for later. But, I mean, it's a horrible, horrible scene. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, there's women and children and babies just everywhere dead and dying. And I think the estimates are that something like um, 300 or, no, it's I think it's like 200 out of 300 uh, Lakota who were there, like two-thirds of them, get killed from this encampment. And it's mostly uh, women and children and yeah. old people. Yeah. And seeing all this, Black Elk just has this, like, I would say a surge of anger just come over him. Yeah. And he's just so upset by this, this scene. I mean, as anybody should and has the right to be. No, they're furious. Um, and then the next day, actually, I mean, within 24 hours, he heads out again with another war party to go and, and keep fighting. Because they're, you know, they're very concerned at this point. It seems like it's it's like a war. And he finds some Lakotas fighting over near Drexel Mission, which is a Catholic mission on the reservation. And it's actually named after a person, a Philadelphia heiress named Catherine Drexel, who donated $60,000 to build this. She became St. Catherine. Yeah. So that's that's why it's called Drexel Mission. And later on, it becomes called Holy Rosary, and it's actually important for the Catholic community. But um, this is going to be called the Mission Fight. And it's the only time in Black Elk Speaks, the book where you actually have Catholic clergy being explicitly mentioned as being present in the story. It kind of seems to come out of nowhere because he, Neihardt tends to portray this as such a tribal long lost world that you don't realize like, Oh, there's other people around. There's, there's actually like a general store and there's a mission Yeah. and there's Catholic clergy acting as intermediaries. And it, anyway, Black Elk describes the priests and nuns tending to the wounded and, Going, actually even being out in the battle, trying to, to get the wounded and sheltering people in the mission. And in the the uh, documentary produced by the Diocese of Rapid City, I don't know if it was produced by them, but provided online by them. There's a part where they talk about this and there's still like bullet holes on this mission, mm-hmm. um, this church walls from this battle. But after this, I think they, somehow Red Cloud ends up with them. I don't know if they, they drag him along or something, but... They're hiding out in the Badlands, which is this really strange scenic area of uh, the Dakotas. And 
they decide, you know, winter's coming on. We don't really have much of a plan for victory here. We're going to go ahead and surrender. Uh, Red Cloud basically kind of lays down the common sense to them and says it, it's time to, to stop. Um, and But he doesn't say it's just time to stop. Like he says, like, think of the women and children. Right. Like, he says, be, think of your people. We have yeah. to live to fight another day. Yeah. And actually, that reminds me of at the mission fight, Black Elk is, like you said, they're angry. He's, he's fighting. He's kind of despairing. He gets shot through the, the stomach and his guts are like, sorry to get explicit, but I mean, he's he's very badly wounded. Like his, his internal mm-hmm. organs are, are spilling out almost. And he tells this older person, um, put me back on my horse. You know, it's a good day to die. And the older person says, nephew, no, your people need you. There'll be a be- there'll be another day to die. So, you know, they have to keep going. And that's Red Cloud's advice basically as well as, it's the now's not the time to fight to the death. We need to preserve our people. Mm-hmm. And that ends kind of the ghost dance movement. I mean, I, I've read that it sort of sputters on a little bit, that there's some revivals that they, they clamp down on again after this. But this is the end of Black Elk Speaks, the book. For the most part. like <clears throat> Yeah. I mean, the book really ends with Black Elk going up on top of the mountain where he had his vision, where he saw himself in his vision. Um, in the Black Hills and and praying for his people. But the the end of the narrative of Black Oak Speaks ends with this darkness where the dream is dead and the yes, tree is dead. Yes, and... it paints a very dark <laughs> picture. Which, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I agree that Native Americans were treated horribly, but from what we get later survived, on... Yeah, know? yeah. And what, what I'm saying is that what we get later from Black Oaks, you know, once he converts and stuff... I. You don't see complete despair. You see some joy. Yeah. And I mean, it's important to remember that he, after this, I mean, he gets married twice. He ends up having a bunch of grandkids. They struggle a lot. And there's, there's going to be horrible times to come still that we'll talk about. But this isn't the end of the story. Like the end of the Indian Wars, even though it's kind of the end of chapter in American history, it's, it's only the first third of his life. Mm Mm-hmm. So, and Nyhard catches some criticism for that. John G. Nyhard for in Black Oak Speaks for making it seem like Black Oak's a settled man who's just looking back at something that happened 50 years ago and despairing. Mm-hmm. But one of the horrible things that's going to happen is the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl. And, I mean, the books were written in 1932. It's not happy times. So that could have shaped the tone of the conversation that, that led to that book. So but, let's go on to Yeah, so what happens next is... He's, he's, practic- he's, being, he's practicing as a medicine man. Yeah, he gets time. on with his life, and he's, he's practicing as, as a medicine man, and he becomes known for that. Um, he gets married, though, to a Catholic woman named Katie Warbonnet. Yeah, but this doesn't change his conversion until later. Right, because... Well, but he... I think what maybe is implied, at least in this book uh, that I was reading, the Joe Jackson one, is that while he may not have converted formally during that time, but he was benefiting from the, like, you know, the fact that he had that community around him at that point already. And even during that time, I think people were talking to him, saying, you should you should convert to Catholicism. So, really, really quick, just so you guys know... um. Yes, the Episcopalians were first put there. Right. They were the ones who the, the federal government wanted to put in. They wanted the Episcopals. How am, I, how am I not saying it right? The Episcopalian Church. Episcopalian Church, yeah. They wanted them to be to have the monopoly on kind of missionary work on the Lakota reservations. However, it was Red Cloud who kept asking for the black robes, which were the Jesuit priests. Right. So they, for whatever reason, Red Cloud, and actually even Sitting Bull I read, 
had greater trust for the Catholic clergy than for other people, other white people, and they were advocating for them to come to be allowed to have a mission there. And like we said, um, Catherine Drexel, who is a Philadelphia heiress, she donates money for the, the Drexel mission, which becomes Holy Rosary, to be built. And they actually send in a bunch of like German and Swiss um, mm-hmm. clergy, which is kind of interesting because they're like... And refugees. Yeah, they're like, they're basically refugees, exiles from their lands. And they're being sent to these people who are in a, I mean, not exactly concentration camp, but like who are in sort of a forced exile from their larger yeah. homelands. And they're all supposed to be speaking English. None of them speak English as a first language. They're all, they speak German. They speak Lakota. <laughs> you got these German priests learning Lakota and eating sauerkraut sandwiches together. It's really interesting. <laughs> so um, anyway, so he marries. He marries Katie Warbonnet. And he has a couple kids, I think, with her. But the famous one's going to be ben, Benjamin Black Elk. Um, but some of their children die right there. Yeah, and I think he's he has a... I didn't keep track of all the children dying, um, but they have horrible... I mean, this plague of tuberculosis that hits the reservation, mm-hmm. I think, along with other diseases. And it's just... It's a constant refrain when you're reading, like, the later chapters of his biography of, like, kids dying. You know, it's just misery everywhere. I mean, unfortunately, it's... They, they deal with serious tuberculosis problems, and he's going to catch it as well. Um, and deal with sickness from that. And there's a picture of him, I think, from about 1890s, when he looks, like, much older and, and sicker. Um, you can just tell. Yeah. But they also, they have a little bit of a moment where it's possible they're going to be prosperous as cattle farmers. Because the government actually gives them cattle, and they, apparently they kind of take to that. Because, they, you know, at least they were used to eating buffalo and living off of that. But they want to have free-range cattle herds, and then the government gets the bright idea that, no, everybody needs to have set land. We're going to emphasize property. Uh, if only we could have free-range now. Now that's all we want is grass-fed free-range. Yeah, I know. But somebody decides <laughs> there's kind of a scheme to... I think that there was a corrupt thing going on in the background where they want to divide up the lands and make sure that each family has their own, their own lot. And that isn't ideal if you're going to do grass-fed, free-range cattle. Because it really limits how many you can have. The Indians aren't experienced with that, the Lakota, and they um, they basically end up with too many cattle on too little land. And meanwhile, like industrial cattle companies come in and take up excess land, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and ruin that land with with devastating overuse and everything. Yeah. So that whole idea collapses, um, and it's after that. You know, he might have been kind of bitter in the Great Depression when Nyhart comes. And you've heard those stories like with the Great Depression and Dust Bowl where suddenly people don't have enough food to feed all their animals and they're slaughtering all of them and it's just awful. So anyway, that's at the background of like the 20s and 30s. But meanwhile, Katie Warbonnet dies, I think, in like 1903. And Black Elk in 1904 decides he's actually going to join the Catholic Church. Like I said, it may have been more of a slower movement where he kind of became part of the community. Then when she dies, she had been his link to that community, and he decides to keep that going, maybe for his family. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what he meant, maybe, when Nyhart asks him, why did you become Catholic? And he says, my children have to live in this world, is what he says. Mm-hmm. That sounds like, well, that's really a cynical, surface-level thing, like he was just opportunistically continuing the Catholic Church. But I think he may have meant, I, I kept it up, because you know his family had become part of that, mm-hmm. I think, is my interpretation of that. Nyhart wasn't really that interested. 
Yeah. In his non-traditional beliefs, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But he, his daughter from his second marriage, who he raises very, very Catholic, Lucy looked twice. She later says that his conversion story involves a priest interrupting his medicine, his uh, medicine man kind of ceremony for a, a sick child where he's, you know, I think he's beating a drum and he's burning some tobacco as an offering, chanting something. And a priest comes in, throws all his tobacco stuff in the fire, throws out his drum and says, get out of here, Satan, and grabs him by the neck and throws him out of the tent. And uh, yeah, to most of us, I think there would be like, <gasps> Oh my god. Yeah, and it's like, kind of so rude. Yeah, I mean it sounds like a really discouraging, horrible conversion story. Like what the heck? And it's weird cuz the author who recounts the story, Stealthenkamp, who's a of Jesuit priest now, he says that when Lucy looks twice, like Oak's daughter would tell the story, everybody would gather around and laugh and this was such like a I don't know, some sort of like trope of this is just how those old missionaries were, they were old curmudgeons and and see, and for for me as a Hispanic too, like I see and hear those kind of things, like, like, like when so. you see, like when you see a kid and you say gordito, oh. it's not like you're <laughs> trying to really call him fatty. It's that it's just like Hispanic culture has a little bit meaner sense of humor. I've noticed. Yeah, but that's all in to say that I think that that's where it stems from, and I can kind of relate. Well, to less that. I wouldn't. I'd retract my what I said. Sorry, More, maybe less political correctness. And the same thing, I think traditional people, maybe in general, just don't have that same sensibility of like, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. But he, I mean, so I don't know. Different people get a different message out of that story. But anyway, in the story, he comes out of the tent. He's kind of standing there or sitting there discouraged. And the priest comes out and talks to him more gently this time and takes him with him. And they, I don't know if he was, he's supposed to have been kind of sick. And they supposedly he takes him and they end up giving him medical treatment. And at that point, he requests instruction in the Catholic faith and receives it. And after about two weeks, then he's baptized in December 6th. And which is why he takes the name. Yeah, there's a feast of St. Nicholas. He then considers that his new birthday, which is what he tells Nyhart, is my birthday is December 6th. And he takes on the Christian name Nicholas, as Nicholas Black Elk becomes known as Nick. But uh, there's also reasons to think that maybe that story, the specific confrontation and the tent with the child and the shouting and everything and the violence that that maybe didn't happen so one thing the priest that the story is told about other people comment that no he that guy wouldn't have done that he spoke lakota they wouldn't have had this conversation in english where he says get out satan and it also just didn't sound like his personality like he was a small little priest he wasn't someone who was like a big imposing violent person and also People doubt that Black Elk would have would have put up with that and reacted in that way. And then there's another weird thing of Lucy Lookstice would always say the dogs were barking during this moment. It was like a and Steltenkamp says that that's a Lakota storytelling thing that you would say dogs are barking as a sign that something supernatural is about to happen. So all of those things to say that you know there just might be it might be a questionable historically story. Um, his real conversion experience may have happened slowly over the years. As he came into more contact with the Catholics. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, he raises Ben and Lucy, his kids, Catholic, and he has lots of other kids. He loses some. And he becomes really active in the church as a catechist, Mm -hmm. which at that time, it wasn't just like your catechist at your church who's there, you know, part time helping. He was like hauling wood, going on like trips with the priests and helping to make sure that the, the church was ready when they came, helping them to know if someone was dying or sick. Yeah, and just to kind of, I would say, and I mean, in my part, I would say it's kind of like a deacon position. 
It sounded almost like that. It was like a, I mean, it was like a ministry. Mm-hmm. He would preach and he actually personally baptized people too. Mm-hmm. And so also he would go around. Um, yeah. Once they kind of came to trust him, he was like a missionary. Yeah. He would go around with the two roads map. Is that what we're going to talk about? Yeah. Um, so the two roads map was basically made by, um, was it, it wasn't first made by the Catholics, right? It was made by. I don't re- actually know. I think you may be right that it, was, it might've come out of one of the other Protestant churches, but it was like yeah. a, it's a giant chart or picture thing. It's a like a picture chart that basically is trying to, uh, a way to catechize Mm-hmm. the the Lakota like it and, shows different episodes from like salvation history but it also sort of shows like the soul's symbolic journey through life like through different temptations and trials and stuff yeah and then also has like um and they the whoever made it chose certain colors to speak to the Lakota so their red road is actually I think be... it was it was actually a coincidence oh really yeah I think that it was made for different purposes. And, but when they show it to Black Elk, he's like, wow, it's got like a black road and a red road. And, um, you know, he's just as, I think it was a black road and the golden road or something where the original colors on the chart, he's like, no, the red road. And he, he really latches onto it because it kind of shows, coincides with elements of his vision. Mm-hmm. So he, he really uses that. And there's a famous photograph of him with several little children, three little children showing them the, the two the, roads chart. Yeah. And so he would go around using this to catechize his people. But he remained, like, respectful of the traditional religion. Obviously, in his heart, he also still believed in many elements of it, I think. Yes. Well, I mean, and I think I think he has the right to because it says, in my, I guess I shouldn't put my opinion on here, but, like, I no, just think, I just it. think that he, his visions do show signs of Christianity I mean, yeah. Like, I wonder though so much. It's hard. I really in his great vision. There's like twelve. The number twelve is like. Well, I know. I remember in the ghost dance vision that he like besides meeting Jesus, he's there's also like Jesus's twelve friends standing mm-hmm. by. I'm like, huh, that's. But interesting. it's not just in the ghost dance. It's also in the great vision. Like there's twelve horses, or there's. 12... Oh, there is. Yeah. There's also remember there's that part. This is sidetrack, but there's isn't there a person who's like painted red who like transforms into a buffalo. Mm-hmm. I so felt like intuitively that that must be something about the incarnation. But mm-hmm. anyway, getting off track. And then, you know, there, so what I would like to say is like, since it's not, it, nobody like Nightheart had written about his life after his conversion too much. So you only really have his two children. Yeah. And I only, and it's not that he only has two children, but those two become important for his legacy because to skip ahead, way ahead. Benjamin Black Elk becomes a really famous like performer and kind of he's like a guy who was always at Mount Rushmore dressed in very traditional Native American garb for um, the tourists to ask questions and to take pictures with. And he becomes known as the fifth face of Mount Rushmore because he's on so many like postcards and magazine covers and stuff. We actually found a magazine with his uh, his picture on it. Yep, we did. That was super cool. It's from like 1962. Maybe you should put it in the show notes. Um, I can maybe put a link to it, but it's, uh, if you look at it, any of these biographies of Black Elk, there's usually a picture of Benjamin Black Elk. But he's also, he's a, he's a spokesman also for his father's legacy and interpreter of it. More with an emphasis on the traditional side. Lucy looks twice, especially after the American Indian movement gets started in like the 60s and 70s. 
she gets kind of worried that Black Elk's being treated as too much of a traditionalist and wants to remind everybody he was a Catholic. Um, Both children were Catholic, though. Like, that's yeah. something that we do have to understand. And it seems like his grandchildren, for the most part, have followed suit as well, right? I think that there's kind of a branch of the family that's more traditional and uh, a branch that's more Catholic. But is um, I think in the documentary, I think it's actually Lucy Looks Twice's son, um, who is one of the people that really is a big supporter of his sainthood cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was actually present at the canonization of... Uh, Sinkatiri. Which is what brought on the... Yeah, he mentions it. Like, hey, the, you know, I'm Black Elk's grandson. Couldn't this happen to him? And people are like, yeah, that could happen. So, interesting, you know, that is his children become part of the story. Yeah, and so Ben is supposed to be thought of as, like, more of a traditional... But yeah. he is still Catholic. I think he was. And his, um, I don't know, his nephew or something in the documentary says... And I read this in one of his speeches, too. Where he said that at least while Native American religion remained outlawed, you've kind of felt like you were tearing down Christianity whenever you tried to keep like something like the Sundance alive. Um, but that wasn't the intention, but that's how they made it. They made it an all or nothing situation. And luckily, as he was growing older and things changed, he felt like the two things were growing more together. And I know there's still hardline people that were like, well... No, he should have just been Catholic and that should have been enough. But, I mean, you have to view this all in context where... And also, I, I think... And... Viewed more sympathetically, I mean, I think the Lakota did have a really strong tradition of actually praying to one god. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why you couldn't do that with a pipe and just... I don't know. I mean, I, I think they have a point that we were just trying to pray to God. Um, And then do you want to talk about the controversy of Lucy? The fact that Lucy is kind of seen as, like, speaking into her dad, not speaking of her dad. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, there's so, where, I'm kind of lost where we were at, I guess, in the story. So we were up to the point, I guess, of kind of black. Just him being. uh, So he's a catechist. This is the early 1900s. He's going to conferences and he's basically preaching. He's very much involved in the church. And then he gets tapped as a resource by Nyhart for the ghost dance research and ends up producing this Black Elk Speaks book. And Nyhart writes it, but it's supposed to be Black Elk's words. Ben Black Elk, his son, is the translator during those conversations, which Lucy kind of doesn't like. And she wonders if he gave a more traditional edge or, or you know, censored her I, father. And I disagree because I think that, you know, you and I talked about this at, like, the... And I kind of, I don't, yeah, I don't really believe that either. I don't know. I, because, reading I mean, Black Elk, I well, just, and then we saw in the notes that Nightheart just decided to go in a different direction, like... I mean, there's times when Nightheart had to make a decision as far as, like, Black Elk would give him Red Cloud speech at, for in the Badlands, and it would be two different things, you know? And mm-hmm. he'd had to be like, well... You know, I can't have two different red cloud speeches in the book. I'm going to kind of massage that material together and put a different stamp on it a little bit. Yeah. Or, you know, supposedly the last speech about the, the great dream dying was is more Nyhart than Black Elk. Like, yes. who knows? But I think, you know, there's like a long-going friendship between the Nyharts and Black Elks. But there's a couple, like, letters from after the book. So we're getting into later, after the 30s. Where Black Elk's concerned, supposedly, that he's not being shown to be a Catholic now, that he's being painted as this traditionalist. And he tries to say that Nyhart came to talk to me. He wrote a book about me, but he didn't include everything that I said. 
and I want it known that I'm a Christian now. And they, one of these letters is signed by Black Elk, by a priest, and by Lucy. And I don't know. I mean, I guess I believe that maybe Black Elk knew what was in the letter and wrote it. You know, maybe it was just at a moment when he was being feeling pressured. Maybe he was actually upset. Who knows? So it's possible Black Elk kind of questioned how he was being presented in Black Elk Speaks. Mm-hmm. It's also possible that, you know, some priests who he didn't get along with or who did not approve of Black Elk Speaks' message as being, you know, about the ghost dance, about the traditional religion, may have exerted some pressure on him or not led him to know what was fully in the letter. Um, so that's part of the controversy I think you're alluding to. Yeah. And people, but in a broader sense, I think people question whether she's kind of projecting back her own very strongly held Catholicism on him mm-hmm. and that he might have had a more ecumenical kind of mindset of, you know, believing both. I don't think, I don't believe that he only believed the traditional religion and that the Catholicism was some sort of no, screen. No, and I would, I would agree with that too, because of his, the way he speaks, like it, even, even in some of Neidhart's dialect, like you could tell, like he's talking about Jesus. And also he understood that he had a mission to save his people and it's also, there's um, other things like uh, yeah. and then we've the been fact- mentioned, I think, like the fact that John Lungus's friend and him would walk to church every Sunday saying an entire rosary. I mean, he, they weren't doing that to appease anybody. They just were doing it, you know, together. Mm-hmm. And he, so he had this rosary devotion. He would, he was very fond of getting the Eucharist. I just, I just don't believe that it was an act or that it was like a, a despair, like lack of confidence thing for his midlife crisis for 20, 30 years. I, I think that he uh, believed it. We had, there are a couple more things we have to mention at the end of his life, and then maybe we can keep talking about that part. Okay. The last couple things to mention is he becomes part of something called the Duhamel um, Indian Pageant, I think is what it's called, which is a tourist attraction where they get to go camp in the Black Hills, dress up in Indian traditional regalia, and demonstrate some of their dances um, and skits. Kind of like he did for the Wild West show. And um, this is going to be the type of thing that, like, Benjamin Black Oak sort of continues in his costume. Yeah, and it gives him stuff. life again to see. Yeah, and it sounds hokey, but it's it's a chance for him to to keep doing what he did in Black Oak Speaks, which was, like, share his culture with people. Because he believes that he has a message, you know, that this is important to share with people. Mm-hmm. So they get to do that, and he's he plays the I mean, medicine his, man. And his grandson was a part of it, too, Lucy's son. Yeah, he was like a little kid that would be part of the skit. Yeah. <laughs> so that was funny. Um, he does that. Eventually, though, he keeps getting sicker. I think he has a fall and breaks his hip. Um, he's also, we didn't mention that he's, he's, everybody who talks about it mentions that he has very bad eyesight. He mm-hmm. may have been injured somehow by an exploding, like, shotgun shell or something, wasn't it? Or a or bullet. Mm-hmm. That exploded in near his face. Um, I don't know if that's true, but he had very bad eyesight and was considered almost blind later in his life. And that leads to some weird incidents with his horse where he accidentally punches his horse baloney in the face one time. Because <laughs> <laughs> he thinks it's a ghost behind him. <laughs> uh, we should. Uh, the documentary has another funny story about baloney. You should watch that. His horse was named baloney. Yeah. The family horse. But he, uh, he gets, you know, kind of goes through that decline that you know, you see maybe with elderly people where he has a bad injury, he doesn't bounce back. At the end of his life, he's, I think he's living in um, a cabin with, on like Lucy's property or something. I remember if it was with Lucy or with Benjamin Blackhawk, but she mentions that before he dies, he tells her, one, to, to keep practicing the faith the way he taught her, 
And two, he says that um, he feels like there's going to be a sign in the sky after he dies. But it's not only her that he gives, <clears throat> he tells that to. I don't remember if it is or not, but I know that when it, when he actually has his wake, there's this really vivid display of the Aurora Borealis, the northern lights in the sky. It strikes many people as being miraculous. Yeah. And most people did associate it with him because he... Yeah, I mean, I don't think just because he predicted it. And remember, sometimes people, again, people don't always trust Lucy Luktois' stories because they think she's so committed to the ideology. But the, definitely the the Northern Lights thing did happen at his wake. When, as people looking up in the sky, this, there's suddenly this crazy and that's vivid very, display. And that's unusual. That's not... Yeah, it, they said it was unusual to happen that far south, and um, it struck, it just, many people saw it. And then there's the connection to the code of religion, too, because... Right, because it's, they believed, you can go ahead, yeah. Oh, well, they believed that uh, once they passed away, they would be going through the Milky Way, right? Right, yeah, that they would return to God along the, traveling the Milky Way. Yeah. So it's, and again, that's so black out, because it, it both affirmed the traditional beliefs about him, but also the Catholic beliefs, because it's yeah. like... I mean, it's, he was he's a little bit ambiguous as far as he was so affirming of people that he people could have taken both ways. But I thought that was really I, I was shocked when I read that. I thought that was yeah, really interesting. That is. But now I guess we talk about a little more what we were talking about with his legacy. That I I think it's hard to miss some Christian influences in his writing, like when his his sec or not in his writing, but in his the way he wants to shape his his legacy mm-hmm. because he. Like with the the Sacred Pipe book, which an anthropologist writes based on some other interviews with him, where he explains Lakota religion, he seems to have intentionally put it into, there are like seven sacraments of Lakota religion. And even at the beginning of the book, he very uh, much affirms that he believes in Jesus and that the second coming. But then he also says, I also believe that the white buffalo cow woman came and brought us the Sacred Pipe a long time ago and that this is true too. So he's he seems to just keep affirming. I know I really do believe that both have something that fits together. I don't know if that works. If that's going to work for the sainthood cause, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I think it does work for a sainthood cause. And you and I have talked about this as like me being Hispanic and stuff, and how like there are glimpses. I mean, Dia de los Muertos is coming up. I know. We've talked about yeah. how you know certain things have been incorporated with the culture so why not yeah incorporate i know the baptism of of easter i mean easter is like literally the name of like a germanic fertility goddess right i mean with the whole thing with bead where it's like we're going to do easter this way but at the same time they're going to preserve certain symbols and certain elements of the the past traditions yeah and i think i mean we know and you know Hint, hint on our next episode, possibly. There are different ways that Mary... Yeah. Mary appears differently to different cultures, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, and it's different cultures. And then she represents herself in their culture. So why can't Jesus do the same? Yeah, there's a good blackout quote about Mary. Where someone was asking why they pray to the Virgin Mary. He's like, well, do are the angels good? And they're like, yeah. Is St. Anne good? Yeah. Well, they honor Mary. Why shouldn't I? <laughs> Supposedly he said that to someone. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I guess it's not, it's, it doesn't personally offend me that he would continue to believe in both in traditions. I, I wonder, I kind of feel like I regret that it seems like the, 
once this moves on to the next step, I guess, in the process, I feel like it's going to put the church in the position of having to weigh in on people's dearly held beliefs. But what I will say about those things from the documentary, it seemed like the priest also said, and even in this book too, like the priest said like, okay, if you are the medicine man, just bring your, your herbs and things like that. Like they did accept those things. Just don't yeah. start doing your spiritual. Yeah. And that's actually why I didn't, I didn't end up quoting it, but like I marked the page in the catechism that was about, there's a passage about magic and about magic being bad. And it specifically mentions even to heal people. So it's like, you know, there's, we, you do have to, we have to take out the part that is about trying to control, use, use power, like supernatural power. Mm-hmm. And I think Black Elk would agree with that. That's why he got, and according to Lucy, he said he got rid of the medicine ceremonies. I mean, he may be, he may have done it once or twice later on, but he mostly stopped that. And, but he insisted that they could keep the pipe relig- the, the pipe as the key symbol of their mm-hmm. traditional religion and certain ceremonies connected with that because that was about prayer and yeah. not about trying to, to do magic. And another thing to go on, you know, if he was a catechist and there's interviews with like other people who had met him that he had catechized, like if you did not believe and you just did this to oh, yeah. somebody, why would... No, I, people remember him you. being so convincing, like yeah. such a great speaker. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what people say about him. I was like, well, he could really talk. Yeah. I think, I, I think he had a sincere Catholic conversion. I think he did have maybe more of an ecumenical mindset than a ultra traditionalist person now does. And as I stated, I think that that's, I, I don't know. I mean, we're not the ones to decide. No, no, it's, it's really not for me to judge. I do think that he continued to believe in, and definitely some parts of his traditional religion Mm -hmm. later on. I don't think for as much as the ghost dance was important for like one second to him, I don't think that, that even that vision of Jesus necessarily became central for him. I think that the earlier vision seemed to have still been important. I think he just thought the way I'm going to put people on the right road was through it now is through Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And Lucy says that the tree in his vision ends up being the faith. It's not so much symbolic. I mean, it is symbolic of the life of his people, but it's, he believes it's coming alive with faith. Yeah. And one of my favorite parts in Black Oak Speaks was when he talks about getting distracted by visions and being faithful to like the main mission he was given. I yeah. That was interesting. Any other thoughts, comments, questions on him? No, I mean, I think, I think he's a great. I thought he was really captivating. Yeah, I wanted to learn more about him. Yeah, he's he that, but I, more so I feel like I, I was telling you, I think he is someone we need to become a saint here for us and for our times, because even in his conversion from like these interviews, he, he understood that some people in his life would revert back to the traditional ways. And he was saying, he would say that that's their, he, he would go to them. That's your decision. And he would, but he would pray for them. Yeah. And that's in like, for me, I think that that's like something hard to just be like, like, just let people go and not argue with them. Be kind of gentle. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, he... I should mention, though, he didn't... It, his conversion didn't cost him nothing. Like, he couldn't keep doing his actual job, which was the the medicine work. He uh, he lost out on that. And, you know, and he, he excluded himself from certain... He alienated himself from people who believed in that still, to some extent. Yeah. 
for the sake of his faith. But I agree, he could be a good example for, I think, to lay people. I mean, he would be another lay saint, like St. Therese's parents, mm-hmm. for, for people now. And I think we kind of do need that in a time when the church is admittedly hurting. Mm-hmm. Well, but, do you want to say the prayer? Yeah. Or do you want me to say it? Uh, why don't you say it this time? My reading is not so So bad. this is from, is this going to be his, this is the prayer this from the Holy Card? This is a prayer of, for the canonization of Nicholas Black Elk from the Diocese of Rapid City. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Heavenly Father, Great Spirit, behold us, who stand before you singing our song of thanksgiving for servant of God, Nicholas Black Elk. Faithfully, he walked the sacred red road and generously witnessed the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ among the Native American people. We humbly ask you to hear the prayers we plead through his intercession. We ask Holy Mother Church to recognize his sanctity by acknowledging his presence among the company of saints, as one to imitate in his zeal for the gospel. Open our hearts to also recognize the risen Christ in other cultures and peoples. To your glory and honor, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our episode about uh, Servants of God, Nicholas Black Elk. Um, We're hoping to record another more modest, shorter episode to get that out a little bit faster soon. So please look for that. And thank you for listening.